Hi, Story Houston. Uh, it is such a pleasure for me to join you virtually uh, uh, from Seattle. I'm here just southeast of Seattle here at my local church. The only thing that could be better than this is actually if I were there with you in person in Houston. And maybe, maybe someday I'll have the distinct honor of joining you there. But for me now, this really is a treat. I also uh, consider it an honor that Eric would invite me to contribute to the series on peacemaking, uh, a massive but also hugely relevant topic for our time. Before I get into what I've uh, prepared to share with you, just some thoughts, observations uh, on this theme, uh, let me share with you my story, because uh, I think to every speaker there is a biography. Uh, and before I sort of synthesize and just sort of give information to you and talk to you, I think it's important for you to know who this person is uh, in front of you on the screen. Uh, now, my story starts actually in Canada. I was born and raised uh, near Toronto, Canada. Uh, and so I'm Canadian. Uh, that means that if you prick my skin today, still I bleed maple syrup. Uh, not really, but I do love, I love some maple syrup. But... Um, more than that, far more than actually just growing up in Canada, I was uh, raised in a Christian home. Uh, both my mom and dad were Christian. And if you were to ask me in my teenage years, just sort of gauge where my faith is, I probably wouldn't have said it. But in my mind, I would have been thinking as if I were a veteran you know, when it came to Christianity. Not really true at the time, but I would have felt it because I spent so much time in a church. Uh, I remember my mom and dad would take us, I have three sisters, they would take us to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, uh, and Friday evening. We spent a lot of time at church. But here's the thing. It was actually in my high school years when I started asking some of the, the big questions. Philosophers call these the ultimate questions, questions of meaning, significance, purpose. Uh, what, what's... What's going to make my life count? Why do I matter? Why am I significant? Am I significant? Where will I find purpose in life? Now, I might not have been actually asking those questions in that kind of sophisticated way, but I was most certainly asking questions of meaning. And the deeper question for me was, what will satisfy me? What source, what place, maybe what person is going to actually give me the answers that I'm looking for to these big questions? And it was in those early high school years when I was involved in competitive sport. And I remember uh, many of my friends on a hockey team that I played for, uh, the party scene is where they found meaning. Of course, again, there, it's not as though we would be saying this at the time. It's not like we were saying, my, life is, my life's meaning is found in partying. But in a way, we showed that question by where we went to for answers. And that was found in the partying scene. And I actually found it just, it lacking a lot. And I was still looking for meaning, significance. And I remember, even though I knew church well, a friend of mine invited me along to his church youth group around that time. And I went along and by, by so many descriptions, it was, uh, it was unremarkable. It was just a normal youth group in a church. They play, we played games, we had some food, and then uh, you listened to a band play, and then a pastor spoke. Pretty standard to me. But I'll never forget being in, it was a small chapel setting, packed in with approximately 100 other teenagers. We were singing songs, and I remember when the band was playing there, looking around, I looked around the room, and it seemed as though all these people around me were singing as if God was actually there in the room. And I thought, 
wow, they're, they're actually seeing it as if they, they, they believe God is here. And the only way for me to describe that moment for you is to tell, me, tell you that I encountered God in that moment. It, the word encounter comes to mind. And I think it aptly describes the moment because up until that moment, I never knew God as someone who could be known. It, God was, uh, he was a set of ideas. He was propositions. He, he was statements, but not a person who could be known. So I went to the spot. I moved from the spot of seeing God as a, as a set of ideas or something to be figured out to all the way over here to seeing him as, and understanding him as a person who can be known. And I want to suggest to you, you know, I'm not sure where you are today on the spectrum of faith, um, but no matter where you are, we all have questions. Uh, and those questions for me led to an encounter. And from the very beginning, before we get into the nuts and bolts of what I want to share with you on this theme of peacemaking, um, peacemaking starts with finding peace inside. But the peace that I found inside was rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, God who has made himself known. So my story really begins at that point. That was uh, in the middle of high school for me. Uh, a lot of life has happened since then, uh, bumps and bruises uh, since then. But still, I look at that point as a watershed moment in which I discovered God as a person who can be known. Here's the thing. There's a vast difference between knowing God as just, um, well, one, knowing about Him to knowing Him personally. Uh, you, I can know a lot about celebrities, but that doesn't mean I actually know them personally. It's a game changer when you know someone personally. So that's what we're, when, when Christians, when we talk about knowing God, that's what we're talking about, relationship. And we're gonna, I'm going to sort of tease a bit of that as we look into this theme today. But for me, the, the journey, as I mentioned, started with questions. That question, those questions led to an encounter. And really, I, I see that actually making a direct link to the theme today of peacemaking, finding peace. When, when I think of peacemaking, you know, we've heard Eric speak to us on prayer and becoming slow to anger and seeing Jesus' call to us as actually blessed are the peacemakers. How that's not the same as actually keeping peace. Those are two different things. And how actually being a peacemaker is, uh, can be disruptive, but with redemptive, uh, the, uh, redemption as the end goal. Um, Today, I actually want to talk about sort of almost a macro level idea of peacemaking in that looking at peacemaking through the lens of finding peace within. You know, when I think of our current cultural moment, here I am uh, close to Seattle, and it's been unnerving these days. You know, I know for you in Houston, it's also, I think both locally and globally, it's been an unnerving moment for us in which we have been living through. Um, it seems like streets, buildings, and cities themselves are burning. You know, as I speak, there's lots of news coming out of Portland of, uh, of destructive behavior. And uh, we saw the same in Seattle just weeks ago. Um, where do we find peace within when there's a lot of turmoil and tension around us? What I want to do is just read a couple passages of Scripture and that, that will provide the base around which I share some of my thoughts with you. So the first comes, uh, both are ancient passages. First one uh, the, the first passage comes from Psalm 121, and this is what the psalmist writes. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you 
will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Then a passage from one of the Gospels, Matthew. Matthew, uh, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I want to ask you a question. And the question is this. When you are in need of help, where do you go? I mean real, almost personal crisis type of help. Where do you go? Who do you go to? Who do you turn to? As I mentioned already, we are living in a moment where um, really it's almost as though someone has put a magnifying glass on the fact that we are not as independent as we once thought we were. We are dependent upon someone, maybe plural, many people, or things. We are dependent beings. We cannot actually do life on our own. And we've seen that. We feel that. It's this all-pervasive reality that actually we need other people. We need community. We need, well, we, we just can't live on our own. The question is, where do we go to for help? Where will we find the help that we really need? And really, this psalm that I read from, uh, you know, Psalm 121, an ancient passage of Scripture, gives us a glimpse into what it is like to journey with God especially when we, are need, when we are in need of help. So what I'd like to do is just take a look at this psalm and also this, this uh, passage I read from Matthew, this quite dramatic exchange between Jesus and his friends, and just share with you some ob uh, observations as to how these ancient stories actually uh, give timeless truths, but also timeless truths insofar as peacemaking is concerned and peacemaking started, starting from within. The first, uh, to, the first thing we've got to look at is context. Uh, generally speaking, if you're looking at any story, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, uh, irrespective of genre, you've got to get the context right. If you miss the context, you miss uh, the greater profundity, the greater meaning under that story. And so when we come to this ancient psalm, uh, uh, Psalm 121, some of you will already know it. If you've played uh, competitively in sport, your coach might have read this to you in the locker room. This is a psalm that has been read to troops in the military uh, as, a, as a psalm of hope, a psalm of courage, a psalm of strength. Um, people often will post on social media, maybe if they're in uh, some vertical landscape before mountains, they'll, they'll post an image. I know, I've seen it. Uh, and then they post below, I look to the mountains where my help comes from. But actually understanding the context here for what the psalmist is saying is going to help us out a lot because it's actually quite different than 
what, for me, I would say, at least, before I looked into this passage closely for what I actually initially thought it meant. It's quite different. And here's the thing. When we look into the context, we know this much. The psalmist is writing, when he's talking about, I look to the mountains, he's talking about the ancient Palestinian hillside. And that in and of itself, if you get that, that is instructive. Because if you somehow do just a bit of study and research into what he's talking about there, he's not just talking about the beauty and wonder of the hillside. Now, for me, I know here in Seattle, uh, we have, we're just surrounded by mountains. And so I understand beauty and the majesty of mountains, but that's not what he's talking about here. Because when he actually is talking about the ancient Palestinian hillsides, he's talking about something that we, unfortunately, would associate as being religious, but he's not. He's talking about something called idolatry. Because in the Palestinian hillsides at that time, uh, it was actually packed with idol worship, temples. There was, uh, it was known as a place for... Uh, male and female sacred prostitution. There were uh, temples, shrines. It, the whole place was riddled with idol worship. So when the psalmist says, I look to the mountains, he's actually saying, look, I look to this place that is offering me a lot of help. Implicit, is it going to give me the stuff that I need? Is it going to give me the strength, meaning, peace, wholeness, that I need? Is it, going to, is it going to give me the inner peace that I'm looking for? That is the million-dollar question here. And as he looks, he does this panoramic view, I imagine, of the Palestinian hillside. He says, where does my help come from? He's looking up at all these places that are promising a lot. He says, where does my help come from? And then he concludes, my help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Now, for some of us who might be listening here, you might be thinking, this is actually, I'm not sure what this has to do with where I'm at today. Uh, so let me just try to bridge that gap here of actually maybe the disconnection that some of you might be feeling. Here's the thing. When we think of the word idolatry, it is disconnected from us because we generally don't use it unless you're in some type of religious or faith setting. But I draw, idolatry is simply this. It's created things that promise much but underdeliver, putting it just crudely. It's created things that promise much that actually underdeliver. Uh, a friend of mine and senior colleague is a guy named John Lennox, who's a mathematician and scientist uh, out of Oxford, England. And he puts it in this, he uses this language to describe idolatry. Idolatry is absolutizing the relative in relativizing the absolute. Idolatry is absolutizing the relative and relativizing the absolute. What does that mean? It means that actually in the act of idolatry, we make things that even actually they might be good. Family, friends, uh, sport, uh, public policy, uh, all these different things that actually might be good. And we make them ultimate. We take things that are effectively relative and absolutize them. But here's the thing. When we absolutize things that are not ultimate, just by definition, we dethrone that which is ultimate. So by definition, when you absolutize the relative, you are actually relativizing the absolute. Um, let me just actually stop there for a moment because I think it's important to understand, okay, what, is, what might that look like for me? 
recently I was talking to a friend of mine and I, I said to her, I, I said, look, I think I might have a problem with shoes. <laughs> you know, I buy too many shoes. Um, and she asked me, like, how many pairs of shoes? And she said, I said, well, right now I have six. And she said, okay, that doesn't sound too bad to me. Okay, just, but here's the thing, Nathan, she said. Um, when it comes to idolatry, you need to make sure that if you're buying shoes, you are buying shoes and they are not buying you. And that might sound trivial or very almost superficial, but it was actually a real issue for me because I, I, was, I was caught up in my image. And again, it's not necessarily, image isn't necessarily a bad thing if you, if you care about how you look or how, how you appear, but when that thing that might be a good thing, becomes ultimate, all of a sudden it becomes an idol. You have absolutized the relative and by logic of that understanding, you have relativized the absolute. When the psalmist looks to the Palestinian hillside, he's saying, look, there are these things up here that all of a sudden they've become absolutized, but they're created things. Remember, they're created things that actually offer much but underdeliver. So I, wanna, I just want to ask you a question. What are the things in your life that you look to that if, if you were going to be honest in your heart of hearts, say, these are things that actually promise a lot, but they underdeliver? Because they're all, there are a lot of things that are calling out to us in this moment in which we clearly need help. Uh, sex, image, politics. Finances, all these things don't necessar- are not necessarily bad. But when distorted, when made ultimate, when perverted, they become a problem. They become detrimental. Now, as we, as we move along here, the psalmist explains the utter uniqueness of God because he says, the Lord will not slumber. And then in verse 4, the Lord will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, why does he mention that? Because it almost seems, you know, why would he mention that? I mean, for us today, especially if we have even a little knowledge about the Christian God, we don't necessarily associate him as falling asleep on the job. <laughs> uh, so why does the psalmist mention that? I want to suggest to you that almost, it's almost as though the psalmist is trash-talking other gods because we know if we're looking at the Bible not just in this one spot but actually reading it, so to speak, um, horizontally, you know, before and after the psalm, what comes, comes before and what comes after, in a book called First Kings in the Old Testament, uh, there's a prophet named Elijah who actually taunts other gods in, the, in that world. And one is Baal. And he actually uh, taunts, them, taunts people who serve this god Baal. And he, at one point he says, hey, uh, maybe you need to wake Baal up. He's, you know, he's prone to taking long naps. So when the psalmist is saying here, this God does not slumber. He does not sleep. He's saying, look, this God who, who, when you look to the mountains, you're seeing all these spots calling out and saying they will be able to offer help, but they actually underdeliver. My conclusion is only God, Yahweh, for us, God who's revealed it in Jesus Christ is able to help. He's the only one strong enough to help us now. What he's saying there is he's contrasting this God to all other gods. You know, a, f- a friend of mine and colleague, Oz Guinness, says this. He says, contrast is the mother of clarity. 
Contrast is the mother of clarity. His point there is, look, if you want to have clarity on certain issues of life that are actually hard and very complex, once you start contrasting and comparing, uh, you know, X to Y, all of a sudden you see the, the differences. And the differences, as he would say, make a difference. And what the psalmist is saying here is, look, all these gods out here, and he's almost like, it's almost a bit of a pot shot to God, the god Baal who was served in the ancient world. He's saying, look, this god that I'm talking about is utterly unique. He doesn't sleep. That's, I mean, that's a category mistake. This god is utterly unique. He does not fall asleep on the job. This god is so different to all the other gods of the ancient world, says the psalmist. He doesn't need to be, he doesn't need a wake-up call. He's so different to other gods. He is strong enough. Now, as I, as I attempt to land the plane here, the question becomes, well, what does this psalm have to do with the other passage of Scripture I read from Matthew? Well, let me just explain a bit of the context because, again, context becomes important. When we come to this, uh, this exchange between Jesus and His friends, when Jesus effectively is calling His friends out, He's saying, look, what are people saying about me? And, and they give him a very astute answer. Well, some say, Jesus, you're the prophet. Some say, you're Jeremiah. Some say, Elijah. Pretty at that time, they would have been, those would have been intellectually astute answers. But Jesus actually cuts to the chase. He says, hold on. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, I want to suggest to you that when Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, that actually is profound. But what actually is even more profound, I think, is not what is said, but where it is said. Because this takes place in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And the link that I find between this passage of Psalm 121 to Matthew 13 is the fact that both places were packed, riddled with idol worship. In the case of Caesarea Philippi, it had been a center of worship for Baal. Then of the Greek god Pan, and then most uh, recently, in this moment, when Jesus asks in first century this question, he's uh, it just before this moment that place would have been packed with the the worship of Caesar. So I imagine Peter, the guy who actually stands up and answers the question, I imagine Peter looking around. He knows the history there, and he says, "Jesus, no, you you are different, Jesus. You're it. You're not like the other gods." You are, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you are it, Jesus. Peter comes out with it, and I want to suggest to you that in that moment, Peter discovered something of who Jesus truly was, God in flesh. Peter, I I almost see him not just leaning, he stands up. And he tells Jesus, almost as though he's just discovered it. Jesus, you're different. Here's what I want to leave you with. So much of the question of inner peace, so much of the issue of peacemaking, starts with finding peace within. But that whole issue of finding peace within is completely wrapped up with answering the question of who Jesus is. If you get the answer to that question right, that's going to have a direct implication for how you find peace, true peace.
So here's a question. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the question for us today. Could you imagine if we took that seriously? Not just as some like uh, question that's cloistered off to a church building, but actually a question where people took that seriously and embodied that peace, that disruptive redemption quality. Not too long ago, actually, a few days ago, I, uh, I, I intentionally not looked at the news much, but I just looked at some of the headlines and uh, later that, it was in the evening, and then I remember uh, just before I put my head on the pillow, I just had um, a sense of anxiety. And I used that word uh, carefully. Uh, it was not anything close to a panic attack or anything, but I think the word anxiety sometimes is misused, sometimes overused. But I would say, at the very least, I was feeling stressful because of the news. And I remember as I put my head on the pillow, a thought that came to me, and it was a picture. It was a picture of being in the boat with Jesus. If you remember that story of Jesus with his friends, it, it also it's a story told in Matthew's gospel of Jesus with his friends in the boat, and Jesus, in, incidentally, is sleeping. Well, and he's in the boat while his friends are in that same boat crying out. They, they believe they're going to drown. Just think grown adults crying out in terror. And I remember having this feeling that uh, I feel like so much around me is unpredictable. It's uncertain. I don't know what I have, but I do know this. I have Jesus with me. I'm in the boat with Jesus. Where do you find yourself today? Can you say that same, can you say the same thing? Are you with Jesus? Maybe the, the, one of the most profound truths of the Christian faith is when we're looking for Jesus, if we are following him, if we have engaged with this God, he is with us and we feel him, but even when we do not feel him, we know that he's with us because he lives inside us. We have the indwelling presence of his spirit inside us. Do you know that truth? Do you know that reality? In, we are all in a storm right now. And no matter what boat you find yourself in, the question is, are you with Jesus? If you have engaged with him, he's with you in that boat. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that although there, there, it seems the storms are raging around us, so much that is uncertain, this feeling of just um, instability, turmoil, anger, fear, Lord, I pray for each person listening, and I pray that you would meet with us. Let it not be just something theoretical. Let it not just be something informational, but let it transform the very core of our beings so that we find peace in you. And let that peace be a means, let it be a robust and profound means by which we are able to be peacemakers in a troubled world. Come, fill us afresh with your presence now, Lord. For your sake, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.